As we prepare to go and open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we open now your word, we pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all of your fullness. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to read uh, this portion of God's word from uh, verse 1 through verse 21. You'll find that on many of the pew Bibles at page 77. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And we want to look at chapter 20 together and read verses 1 through 21. So Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. It will probably not be difficult for me to convince you that we have here one of the most important texts in Scripture. Um, We come to this text often. Uh, We try to use it in our worship service once a month as a summary of God's law so that we are regularly hearing the law of God uh, from this passage of Scripture. Um, Ordinarily, several weeks a year, we take time to go through the Ten Commandments from the Heidelberg Catechism to remind ourselves of what God requires of us in the Ten Commandments and how we are properly to understand them. And we come back to this passage again and again because it's so important. 
because it's such a clear summary of what God expects from his people, um, as we confess in the catechism, it's a, it sets out for us the duties that we owe to God. That's the first table of the law. The first four commandments set forth the duties that we owe to God. And the second six set forth the duties that we owe to our neighbor. Um, and so the, it's a wonderful summary of what God wants from his people. And this is, comes in a context. God gives his law to his people from Sinai. And this is the wonderful account of the giving of this law. And we use it, we refer to it, we think a lot about it. So what makes it one of the most important passages in Scripture? Why do we come to this passage again and again? Or we might ask it this way. Why does God come specially to give this law to his people with his own voice? Um, we, We come back to this passage again and again and we hear again and again, God spoke all these words. That, that's somewhat unique in Scripture. Oftentimes, God's word comes through other people. God speaks to a prophet, and the prophet comes and says, thus says the Lord. Or God spoke to Moses, and Moses comes and brings the word to God's people. But here, God speaks this word. Um, all the people hear the voice of God speaking this passage. And so this, this comes with a certain importance that God says this directly to his people. Uh, That's what makes this such an important passage, and we want to think about it and meditate on it. Why does God come to give his law personally to his redeemed people? And I think we see from this passage three reasons that God comes and does this. God speaks this law to his people because he wants them to remember him. He wants them to walk with him, and he wants them to fear him. And that's how we want to think about this passage together. God comes to give his law so that we would remember him, so that we would walk with him, and so that we would fear him. How do we see that playing out in this passage? Um, Well, we have this, this remarkable scene before us at Sinai. Verse 18 reminds us of the context in which these words come. The people were seeing lightning, thunder, flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. Um, This is an awesome display of the holiness of God coming to earth, shown before them. It's from this great display of holiness that God speaks to them. Um, it's It's a colossal sight that's presented to us, full of sound, full of the 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 physical and and audible manifestations of the holiness of God. It's from this context that God speaks. And where does God begin? When he himself is going to speak to his people, where does he begin? Well, he begins with an important reminder, right? Reminding them who is the God that is speaking to them. Right? God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord. There's this tremendous frightening picture of who God is, but that word that's spoken is a comforting word. It's reminding them who this God is who's speaking. Right? It's not God spoke all these words and just said, I am God. What does he say? I am the Lord. Right? That's his covenant name. That's the name by which he's known. 
to them. I am Yahweh. I am your God. I'm not different than the God who's preserved you in the past. I'm not different from the God who walked with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If this is not some new thing that you're seeing, this is the God you know. This is the God you're aware of. This is the covenant God. He wants them to know that. Why does, why does the Bible so often identify God this way? Um, you've probably heard me say to you a time or two, the Lord means Yahweh. When you see it all in capital letters, that's what it means. Why does the Bible repeat itself? Why does God come and identify himself like this over and over again? Because God wants these important truths to sound in our ears so that we don't just hear them, but we remember them. That they continue to come to mind. We know that this is how we learn things. Right? How many times have we, did we need to be told as a child or did we, have we needed to tell children, say please and thank you? It's not like you say that to them once and they get it. Right? Why do you have to keep saying that? Why when they receive something do you say, what do you say? Um, or when my nephew comes to me and just hands me a cup and says, juice. You say, what do you say? Is that how you ask for juice? Am I your servant that I'm just going to do this for you? Right? You try to impress on them, and you need to keep doing that, right? Because that's how we learn. It's not just little kids that learn that way, right? We as adults still need to learn that way through repetition, through repeated reminders. That's why God comes so often to remind his people who he is, um, to remind them who is speaking to them. The God that has covenanted with them. He wants them to continue to hear it and not just hear it, but remember it. So that's what he reminds them of first, that he is the Lord. He is the covenant God. They already enjoy fellowship with this God. He's not foreign to them. This is the God who made a covenant with Abram. We read in Genesis 15, 17 and 18, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, the animals that Abraham had cut in half. And on that day, the Lord, Yahweh, made a covenant with Abram. And you might remember that Reverend Tedrick led us through this in Sunday school, that those pieces were cut in half as was usually done in a covenant ceremony, and then both parties would walk through and take on the responsibilities and say, if I don't do my responsibility, let me become like the pieces of these animals. But God had put Abram to sleep, and God passed alone through the pieces. That it was God who made the covenant. I don't think it's any coincidence that when Exodus 20 verse 18 describes the lightning on Sinai, it's the same word that Moses used in Genesis 15 for the flaming torch. It's that same God who undertook the covenant himself. Not saying to Abraham, I'll do my part and you do yours, but saying to Abraham, I will do everything to make this covenant. That same flaming torch that passed through the pieces is the same flaming torch that's thundering and lightning on the mountain. It's the same God who's a covenant God, who has been the covenant of covenant maker with his people and the covenant keeper. Right? I am the Lord, your God. 
I'm the God not of just other people. We're not just a covenant God in general. I am your God. And that comes with a particular emphasis to this people in this place. Because it was the Lord, the covenant God, who looked upon them in their slavery and remembered the promise that he had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Who remembered what he had promised and covenanted to do. And from that promise, from that position of love and care, brought them out of slavery in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You belong to me. I have covenanted with you. And because I am the Lord and because I am your God, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You belong to me because I redeemed you. This is not just the God who thunders and who frightens in his holiness. This is the God who's demonstrated his great love and care for his people. The God who's speaking is a redeemer God who has already shown his great love and care for them. It's that beginning that makes the law take on an entirely different character. If God had just said, I am God, so you will do what I tell you to do. Right? Sometimes parents can do that in frustration with their children. Why do I have to do that? Because I told you to. Now, boys and girls, that's a good reason to do something. Because mom and dad told you to. Right? And God could do that. He could say, I am God, so you will do everything I'm going to tell you to do. But it's not how God comes. He says, I'm the God who's loved you who set an everlasting love on you, who's covenanted with you, who's shown himself to be your redeemer. That puts an entirely different cast on this law. Um, Do this not to earn my love, but because I've loved you. It's important here that the Ten Commandments as they begin, the grace that saves comes before the law that demands. There's a reminder that God has already been a redeemer. God has already been a rescuer. That's the God who speaks. That's the God who's giving his law. And this is a vital reminder for us, too, as we remember the commandments of our God. Not to skip over that first important part. The God is a redeemer. Because just as the people experience at Sinai, we can hear the law of God and experience tremendous unease when we hear the voice of a holy God speaking to us in his word. And when we hold up that law as a mirror to our lives, and see how far short we fall of his standard, we can despair of having any hope before the living God. And it usually is because if we fall into that kind of place of despair, it's because we've failed to listen to everything that God has said. We're only hearing God say, thou shalt not, and hearing that we haven't. We're not hearing God say, I am your Lord, your God, 
your Redeemer. And how much more clearly that comes to us as Christians to know that the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the redemption He's redeemed us from is not just slavery in Egypt, but slavery that we are under the devil and the slavery of hell. And He has set us free from that slavery. And that's how the law comes to His people now. We have to hear both parts of it. The history of Israel was very carefully structured by God so that they got that point. As one commentator put it, everything they went through was for the purpose of mirroring for us the important situations of life that befall all the people of God in every generation. That's the thrust of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. These things were written down for us that we might learn from their examples. We might not have stood at Sinai, but if we've really listened to the law and been compelled by it, we've heard it thunder. We've felt the hopelessness of being sinners before a holy God. And so we have to also hear the voice of the Lord speaking to us of the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. Uh, That he came to bear the curse of the law for us to set us free. He came to free slaves. That's what he testifies that he has come to do in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He set slaves free by his blood. When he comes and speaks his law to his people, to those who put their faith and trust in Christ, he's speaking as a redeemer. He wants us to remember him and who he is in his law so that we would walk with him. When we remember who it is who's speaking to us, we understand the purpose and the character of the law in the life of the Christian. It gives us a proper perspective on his law. When we see ourselves as his covenant people, why does God want us to walk with him? Because he loves us. Remember what Jesus said in his earthly ministry to his disciples in John 15, 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Right? What grace promises precedes what the law is requiring. Um, Jesus is not saying, if you keep my commandments, you will earn my love. What does he say? I love you. Keep my commandments and abide in my love so that your joy will be full. Right? God is not saying, I want you to walk with me so that then I will love you. The law would take on, again, another totally different character if that was how the law was presented to God's people. But rather, it's presented as a law of gratitude for the redeemed people. That changes the perspective. 
It's not earn my love. It's you have my love. Abide in my love. And what I want you to do is to walk with me, to abide in my love, to keep my commandments, God says, so that your joy would be full. Because that's where real freedom is found. That's where fullness of life and fullness of joy is found in walking the commandments, walking with God and keeping his commandments. That's where joy in its fullness is found. It seems so counterintuitive to us when we think about it that following this list of rules by God can seem a constraint. God is limiting what I can do by saying you shall not do this and you shall do that. It seems like it's a limitation, but the law has always been the thing that's meant to keep us free. We are loved, and it's meant to keep us living in the fullness of joy and experiencing freedom. Think back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They were created in the love of God, in a perfect situation, and they were given a law. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Why was that law given to them? To constrain them? in some way, to limit their freedom? No, what was God saying? I love you and I want your joy to be full. Don't eat of that tree. It means death. It's an end to liberty to eat of that tree. It's an end of freedom. It's a loss of joy. Don't do it. I want you to be free. I want your joy to be full. And what was the tragedy of what they did? They transgressed his law and they listened to the lie of the devil who's always said, no, 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 you got to depart from God's law to be free. You have to leave God's law to be happy. There's, there's a delight beyond God's no that he just doesn't want you to have. But what did they find? What have human beings always found? Actually, beyond God's no is not delight, it's death. It's not a finding of joy, it's the losing of it. It's not a finding of freedom, it's a chain that you wear around your neck for the rest of your life until you die. That's what God is doing to give his law to his people. He doesn't want that for them. He wants them to walk with him. He wants them to abide in his love, to experience the liberty of living with God so that their joy would be complete. That's why the law was given to Israel. That's what it was meant to do in their lives. And that's why God's law continues to come back again and again as you go through the Ten Commandments. We don't have time to go through all of them tonight. We're not going to try. Hopefully we're going to do that, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. But as we go through God's law, what, what is God's law continually coming and doing to us? God begins, for example, with that identification of who he is, I am the Lord your God, and then prefaces a lot of the commandments with that reality. Right? We see that over and over again, that reminder of who he is, the Lord your God, in verses 5 and 7 and 10 and 12. I am the Lord your God who rescued you. So why would you serve another God? Right? If I'm the Lord your God who rescued you, if I'm the Lord your God who heard you when you called and brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, why would you call out to another God? 
Why would you seek another God who is no God? If I'm the God who rescued you from slavery, why would you use my name as a common thing? Why would you blaspheme the name of the Lord your God who rescued you from your slavery in Egypt? If the Lord your God in his wonderful provision has provided a day of rest from the beginning of the world to give you rest from your labor, to give you a day where you don't engage in the ordinary things you engage in, but have a chance to rest and spend time in his house with him and with his people, why would you not take advantage of the rest that he's given to us? It prefaces it on the goodness of the God who rescues and redeems. And so God is a provider. It also frames it as ungrateful behavior to those who've been showered with so much blessedness. And it reminds us that we have a God who is a just God and a God who is jealous for his people and for their fidelity. It's so hard for, the, for us to really appreciate that word jealous when it comes to God because it's so, such a bad human characteristic. But what it means is a burning zeal. A God is like a husband who has a burning zeal for his wife in, in, a, in a good way to see her protected, to see her built up, to see her protected and cared for. That's who God is. He has a burning zeal for his people and he is a just God. One of the great things about him is that he will not leave evil unchecked or unpunished. Um, we have to be aware of ungrateful behavior because we know who our God is. That he's a just God, he's a jealous God. And he wants his people to walk with him, not against him. Because God wants a people walking with him so their joy will be full. And he wants a people who will fear him. He wants us to remember him, to walk with him, and to fear him. There's two kinds of fear that come across in this passage. One is an improper kind of fear, the, the kind of fear that God is not after with his people. And a proper fear that he wants to develop. We see the improper fear at the end of the giving of the commandments in verse 18. Right Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Um, now we might say, isn't it, hard to criticize them for their fear. As I listen to that, I'm scared. If I listen to that and I'm honest, that's how I would feel seeing that mountain and seeing the holiness of the Lord and hearing the holiness of the Lord. It's not improper that they react that way to what they see and to what they hear. The improper fear is seen in what they said. Don't let him speak to us. As if Moses could stop him. But what do they say? Don't let him speak to us lest we die. If that God speaks that word to us, we will surely die. 
Is that what God wanted for his people? Is that why God spoke to them? It's interesting in the order of things, this is all recounted to them. This is recounted after he has spoken to them. God has already spoken. God spoke all these words. And their reaction is, don't let him speak to us lest we die. Is that why God speaks to us? Is that his purpose in speaking so that we will die? So we'll have that kind of fear of him? And want to say to his servants, don't you let him speak to us. And Moses turns that improper fear and shows them the proper kind of fear of God. Because what is his response to that? In verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. You see how the people in their improper fear said, He's come to make us die. That's why we're afraid, that's why we don't want him to speak. What does Moses come and do? He says, no, no, don't be afraid. He's not come to speak to you so that you would die. He's come to speak to you so that you would live. So that you would not walk in the ways that would bring you to death. So that you would not sin. That's what God has come to do. So that you would fear him. Not in the way we often think of fear, Fear of God in the Old Testament is so often a, synonymous, a synonym for his people to have true faith in him. To know who he is. And to believe him when he threatens. And to believe him when he promises. And isn't it wonderful that Moses comes as the mediator of the Old Covenant and says to the people in God's name, No, 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 you've got it wrong. Don't be afraid. He's not here to kill you. He's here to make you live. He's here to keep you from sinning. And where does sin lead? Always to death. God is not speaking to you to destroy you. He's speaking to you so that you would live. Um, That's how God comes. That's what a proper fear of God is. That's why we said last week, without faith it's impossible to please Him. If there's not that proper fear of God, that proper knowing Him and believing in Him. There's no way to follow Him. There's no way to walk with Him and to keep His commandments in any sense. Um, It's only the, the fear of the Lord. It's only true faith that can create a life that is lived pleasing God, that turns away from self to Him, that turns away from selfishness to loving our neighbors. It's only faith that can produce the fruit of godliness in our lives. What Moses is saying as the covenant mediator is, God is not here to crush you with his voice. He's not here to speak so that you will die. Don't say to me, don't let God speak to us. His voice is the only thing that can keep us alive. His voice is the only thing that can make us live. The only thing that can keep us from sin. 
But it's the mediator of the covenant that has to come and say to the people of God, don't be afraid. And isn't it wonderful that in these last days, God has not spoken simply by a great servant in his house like Moses, but in these last days he's spoken by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of that new and eternal covenant, the covenant of grace. And what does he come and say to his people? When we hear the voice of the law and we're tempted to say, don't let God talk to me or I'll die. That law makes me afraid. That voice makes me afraid. What does the Lord Jesus Christ come and do as the mediator of the covenant? He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled. The Lord's word has not come to you so that you would die. The Lord's word has come to you so that you would not sin and that you would live. That you would walk in that way that is everlasting. That you would walk in the way that leads to life and not death that leads our hearts to put our faith and trust in the mediator who died for our sins, who was raised for our justification, who has filled us with his spirit, who is working out from faith into every aspect of our lives. People of God, don't we need to continue to hear the mediator say to us, don't be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled. These come to you so that you would not sin. Right? John says the same thing to the people of God that Moses said to the people of God at Sinai. Little children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father. Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one, who is the propitiation, not only for us, but for the whole world. He's the one who can turn away the wrath. When we look to Sinai and see the holiness of God thundering and smoking, Christ is the one who can turn away the wrath of God. The mediator that's been provided. It's only because of him and the word that he speaks that Moses can say or John can say, no, listen to him. Listen to him so that you would not sin. He wants your joy to be full. Abide in his love. Walk in his commandments. Then it changes our perspective on the law. That's why we treat the Ten Commandments in the gratitude section of the catechism. It's a law of gratitude for the redeemed who had their hearts filled with a proper fear of God. True faith and out of gratitude for the salvation that he has freely provided to people who should have been consumed by his wrath in themselves. Out of that gratitude for what God has done, we then walk with him. And that's what we would continue to want the law to do for us in our lives as Christians. To listen to God's voice. Calling us to remember the redemption that Christ has provided for those who believe in him by his blood on the cross. To walk with him in love and obedience to his commandments so that our joy would be full. And by the Spirit working in us the fear of God. So that true faith in us produces reverence and gratitude for our salvation, which expresses itself 
in sincere obedience in our lives. Jesus does all of this so that his redeemed people would have life and would have it abundantly. That's what he wants for his people. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's thank him together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that when your law thunders to us and we see our own unworthiness, that you remind us that it's a word to your people from a redeemer. How thankful we are that your law does not come to us as a law through which we have to earn your love. For we know if that was the case, we would never fail, or we would never be able to keep it. We would always fail. But instead, you have done what we could not do according to the law, what the law could never do for us. Christ has done for us. And so we can hear it as the voice of our Redeemer speaking to us, speaking to us of true freedom and true joy that's found in walking in your commandments. We pray that you would help us to walk in them more and more so that we would enjoy that freedom and so that our joy would be complete. And Lord, help us to have a proper fear of you, to believe in you in true faith, to believe the warnings in your law, but also to believe the promises that you give to us, to know that you will turn and be merciful to those who call on you and seek your face, and that fear of you will produce in us lives of gratitude and grateful obedience. How we desire to live more and more according to your will. Work that in us by your spirit, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.